So, see, you thought the very last part of chapter 12 was nuts when we talked about Jephthah last week. All right. So the story of Judges is the story of a God who is consistently faithful to his promises while man is consistently unfaithful to his obligations. We ended last week with an unfaithful man making an unrighteous vow that destroyed his family. Remember the whole thing about the next person that walks out the door of my house will die. And then his daughter walked out and that's just nuts. But anyway, now we're going to begin chapter 13 with a faithful God making a faithful vow to save his family. So you have a person who destroys his family and God is going to make a faithful vow to save his family. All right, let's read the first section. I put all the uh, scripture references there in your handout, so if you ever went back to study this, you'd be able to you know, put together which goes with which. So, first seven verses of 13. The people of Israel, shocker, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord gave them into the hand of, hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful not to drink no wine, nor strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and he appeared to me like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. And I, I did not ask him where he was from. And he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink or eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So for context, we're 200 years since the angel of the Lord visited Gideon in the, down in the wine press threshing wheat. So sometimes you can sort of lose track of time as you're studying through a book of the Bible and you don't really know how much time is going on between different things. But over that time, what we've seen is Israel has followed the pattern that's very familiar to our own lives. Sin, followed by God's judgment, followed by they cry out, followed by God saves. And so it's this pattern that keeps going around. But now we're going to see a shift as we get towards the end of the book of Judges. We're going to see this time that even though the oppression is the longest in the book, Israel does not cry out. That's what's different. Now, Samson 
is unique, I guess, in the sense that he's chosen before he's born, which is different from all the other judges. I mean, uh, he's, but God's got a, a plan for him, and so he comes to this couple. Now, this Nazarite vow, that comes from Numbers chapter 6. And so basically, you would not be allowed to uh, eat or drink anything that comes from the vine. You can't cut your hair. Um, it would be a, you can't touch anything that's dead because that would be unclean, which is the same for uh, if you were a, a priest. You couldn't touch anything that was unclean. So you couldn't do those. It was basically those three things. And uh, it would be for the purpose of seeking after God for a, during a crucial time. So you would do it, think of it similar to fasting. You would do it for a season of time, and it would be pointing towards some particular uh, thing, accomplishment, moment, whatever it is. But in this case, and not only that, uh, normally a, what a person would do is a person would commit themselves to being a Nazarite. But in this case, Samson is committed to being a Nazarite before he's even born, and he's committed to it for life. So that gives you some, you know, it's, in other words, basically for him, uh, his parents took the vow, accepted the vow for him. So in a sense, it was really involuntary for him. Okay. Verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born. For God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman and sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife. And they came to the man who said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything, any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So let's notice a couple things. I think it's interesting that uh, Manoah receives the information from his wife. So as, as I was studying it this passage, I thought, man, this would be great for uh, maybe a future marriage retreat. I can use these two as an example. You can see that his wife tells him something, and he receives that, but then he's like, but I, I'm not sure that I believe that or I trust that, so I need to talk to the angel myself. And then here's what's interesting. The angel reappears but to her again when she's not with him. Don't miss that detail. It's not like the angel doesn't know what's going on. So the angel's trying to tell Manoah, bro, you should pay attention to what's... If I'd wanted to talk to you, I would have came to you the first time. So the angel comes back to the wife when she's not with Manoah, but then 
again, which is the grace of God. And then the angel remains while she runs back. Now notice she doesn't even have a name. While Mrs. Sampson runs back to get her husband, the angel remains there, which again is the grace of God. Because the angel could have just told her and said, tell your husband to shut up and listen to you. But he didn't. So then he comes back. They have this conversation. Now, in one sense, it seems like, well, it's a lack of faith on Manoah's part. But if you think about it, Manoah assumes that the promise is going to come true. See, he doesn't doubt that his barren wife is going to have a child. That's not what's at issue here. He believes that promise. But what he's wanting to know is his request is not for proof that they will have a son, but for help to know how to raise the son. Now, that's just a nice way of me saying, um, you know, what I really want to say is he receives God's message of what? He's hung up on the how, which is exactly what we do all the time. We oftentimes will come to the place where we accept God's what, but we get frozen because we don't have how. And what I've said multiple times over and over and over from this pulpit is, is that there's a reason for that. God rarely ever gives you and me the how. That's where faith comes in. Listen, I want you to make a mental note in your head that you want to be a person that when God shows you the what, you embark in faith towards that what. Do not get hung up on the how. And this is what's happening right here. And what you're going to see is, is that almost everything I'm going to say tonight is illustrating the fact that Israel is in an unbelievable shallow state. And uh, a shallow people are, uh, are you know, just, they're shallow and they're immature. And everything that's going on with Manoah is shallow and immature. And if, if you told me that God told you what to do and you were hung up on the how, I would think you're immature. I would. What in the world, if you know the what, what why would you not move? In other words, wouldn't it, doesn't it just make simple logical sense I always think of things in in terms of the end back to the present so if God shows me the what and I have no idea about the how then the first thing I'm going to think about now and I have no idea how this is going to happen I have no idea how to I don't have any idea about the how this has happened dozens of times in my life but here's the here's what I think I think to myself when I stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, do I want to stand in judgment before God and say, and hear God say, I told you what to do and you stood there like a bonehead and didn't do anything? Or 
I told you what to do and you started going and you didn't exactly do the right thing. At least I'm doing something. But what I don't want to do is nothing. I really want you to get this. It's very important. Because this is such a current application right here. Manoah, do you know what he wants? He wants the angel of the Lord to tell him exactly the steps he needs to take to raise the child. Well, don't we all? Who doesn't want that? What parent doesn't? What book do I need to get that has that in it? Do this and this. I mean, that's what he wants. Well, that doesn't exist. And why would the angel of the Lord have returned if he had no new information? Well, Manoah prayed for help. And it seemed, it appeared, again, put yourself in this situation. How many times have you prayed for help and it appears that your appeal has been ignored? Is that what happened? Manoah did get the help he needed, but not in the form he was asking for. He got the, the prayer was answered. The angel returned. The angel reiterated the information, even though it wasn't new information. Listen. Manoah wanted to know the process. Spiritual things are not a process. Following God is not a process. Raising children is not a process. Marriage is not a process. That's why if, if, if anyone even begins the conversation of, hey, let's, let's, here's a TED talk of the five things that will fix your marriage, Turn that off. Uh, any book that starts with four or seven things, or say, burn that thing. Any, anybody trying, that is a nonsense. Because you know why? The flesh wants a process. God doesn't work in processes. That's not how God works. Instead, God gives Manoah a revelation of who he is. You want to know what, how God works? When we seek after uh, the when we're seeking God in the how God guides us through revealing his character and nature by knowing him that's the way you that's how you and me find our way is by knowing God I mean I don't mean knowing him like in salvation, I mean knowing Him. Knowing Him. See, He wants to know, give me the rules to follow. This, this is Jerry Springer in the Bible. This is also every legalist's worst nightmare. This text dismantles every wound up legalistic goofball who ever lived they can't you can't read this text you cannot read this text because it will destroy legalism 
It's a mistake to think that external rules, you don't have external rules in a mature relationship. If, if, if you have a mature relationship with somebody, do you know what that means? You, if I could just say that and you automatically know that if, if I have a mature relationship with my wife, that means she doesn't have to tell me everything to do. Because children, you tell everything to do. That's a sign of immaturity. So it's the same with your relationship with God. If you have a relationship with God and you need to be told every step to take, that is immaturity. That's what that is. You see, we're not, as Christians, we're not to be conformed, but we're to be transformed. The difference is conformed is external, transformed is internal. A list of rules is external. A mature relationship is internal. Those are two different things. We don't need to know about God through His external standards. We need to know Him by His Spirit. All right, verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Yum! And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. Now, what this is illustrating is how incredibly immature Manoah and his wife are and the state of Israel. The reason that they're trying to get him to stay and eat a meal and they want to know his name, they don't even know he's an angel of Yahweh God. They're so tangled up in so many uh, false gods that they don't even know who they're talking to or what they're doing. And this whole idea, this is a pagan understanding in their culture that if you, if you know a God's name, then you use that name as power to get things done. And so that's why he's trying to manipulate the angel of the Lord into doing these things, that I may honor you. So the angel of the Lord, verse 18, said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on a rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So now he puts this together, and he knows that the, enough to know that the Old Testament says, Well, you can't see God or you'll die. But look at verse 23. I mean, again, ladies, who is the sensible, mature person in this relationship? It's pretty obvious. Look at verse 23. His immediate response is, we're going to die. I mean, really? And so she says, hold on, honey, calm down, take a deep breath. Uh, If the Lord had meant to kill us, 
he would not have accepted our burnt offering and our grain offering in our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Duh. So what this reminds us is, is that faith is not the absence of thinking, but it is thinking and acting on the basis of the word and promises of God. In other words, she's thinking. She's paying attention to what? Not to all the things that this is making her feel. Because imagine. Imagine what's going on inside of her. She's been barren all these years. And so suddenly a strange being shows up and says, you're going to have a child and starts saying all these things. But you know what? She stays focused on what the angel said what the promises are, and she, she keeps her emotions bound up into the boundaries of those things, and she's able to comprehend and make sense of it. Her husband, on the other hand, is not doing a very good job. Verse 24, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. So here's, the, here's three things that we can pull from chapter 13 so far, what we've read. First of all, devotion to God is a call to leave that which is comfortable and trust Him. Notice, God shows up and creates conflict. He creates tension. He shows up with this shocking information, the shocking news, and so it's to push them out of their comfort zone. Second of all, that God is mysteriously, He's a mysteriously wonderful Savior, and He calls us to follow Him in a mysteriously wonderful mission that requires genuine devotion and sacrifice without guarantee and without explanation. You see, understand something. The angel of the Lord, which is really just a, 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 the pre-incarnate Jesus, has full comprehension of all things. The angel could very easily tell them everything they want to know, answer all of their questions, take away all of their fears, put their minds completely at ease. But that's contrary to how God works. So... Although your flesh and my flesh wants God to do that, he's not going to do that because that's not how he operates. It is a sign of immaturity to do so. God's trying to move us to trust. And therefore, you're going to have to take steps that, that you're not sure about, that don't have guarantee and are without explanation. And thirdly, God hadn't told Samson's parents the details of how he would use their son, only that he would. Which is all they needed to know. That's all they needed to know. Of course, you got questions. I got questions. Everybody has questions. But you know what? You're going to have to just wait and see. You're going to have to just walk by faith and see what happens. Chapter 14. 
Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Boy, maybe he needed a few instructions on how to raise a kid. You know, might have been helpful. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not another woman among the daughters of, the, of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Okay. Now, where is he? He's in Timnah. Where is Timnah? I'm just telling you this. I know you don't know this. It's deep into Philistine country. So, so imagine, he just leisurely, casually wanders deep off into the Philistine country, thinks nothing of seeing some good-looking Philistine girl and saying, hey, I want her to be my wife. So that tells us about the situation. It tells you some things about what's going on. The fact that, that the, it says in uh, verse 2 that they were, the Philistines were rulers among them. So the thing is, they were rulers, but the people were just at peace with this occupation. There wasn't hostility between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines were ruling over them, but the Israelites liked it. They had just come to accept it, which is why they didn't cry out. It's because they didn't... God intervened in their plight, but they weren't crying out because they really didn't see it as a plight. See, there's no resistance to their enslavement. You got that? You should write that down. Today... There's very little resistance to our enslavement. That's exactly the situation that you live in and I live in today. We live in a country that is perfectly at peace with our enslavement. Which is why, if you want to get folks riled up about something, come on, let me stomp a few toes in here. All you got to do is mess with their comfort. Yep. Most Christians are way more wrapped up in the politics of their comfort and preference than they ever drink and don't give a rip about sin. You'll get so bent out of shape, son, about the economy or jobs, or the border, or this, or that. Meanwhile, babies being slaughtered, well, you know, see? I'm just saying. That's how it is. We live in a world where it's all about our comfort and our preference. And those are the things at the top of the list. And morality is... And, and look, it doesn't matter what kind of moral character you have. If you stand for the policies I like... We're in. Come on. I dare you to tell me I'm lying. You know I'm not. It's not about morality. It's this right here. See, Israel has come to accept their oppression 
and their idolatry as the new normal. It's just the new normal. He's just wandering through Philistine country. He's not hiding behind bushes or trying to be careful. Or No, he's just rolling along. See, they don't cry out because their sin no longer bothers them. They're content living in like and for the world. I mean, the Philistines bring stability to the economy, protect them militarily. So there's some benefits to being under the rule and oppression of the Philistines. But the problem is we're all intermingling and marrying and we're losing our distinctiveness and we're worshiping all their false gods. But hey, that's kind of a bummer, but they are protecting us. So there's some good too. So it's really not that bad. That's the situation you got. But here's the, in the middle of all that, his father, verse 4, 14, 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord that he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. You got this? At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, that verse right there, 14.4, the next time you get in a conversation with a legalist, just all you have to do is remember that and say, can you please explain to me Judges 14.4? That's all you have to say. And then say, why don't you go home and study it and come back and explain it to me when you're ready, and you'll never see them again. Look at what it says. Now, you've got a complete moral disaster on your hands. You've got a son acting like a, a, a lust-filled lunatic jerk. You've got a dad who's a total, a terrible leader and totally immature and wrapped up in all kind of pagan worship. The mom, whose name we don't even get, is the only one with half sense in the whole story. And in the middle of all this, it says, well, but what his parents didn't know is that it was from the Lord. So for a legalist, the question you have to ask is, could you explain that to me? In other words, the person that God is using is the person who's seemingly doing everything wrong. There it is right there in black and white. And the answer to how this occurs it's very simple. It's because God remains unconditionally committed to His covenant promises. It's, it's not based on what me and you are doing. He's unconditionally committed. See, He is so faithful to His promises that He not only fulfills them in spite of their sin, but even through their sin. Because if you believe, which I'll, I'll show you this in the text in a few minutes and what's coming. But a lot of times this is what we believe because it's logical to us in our flawed and broken thinking. We believe that our sin affects God's ability. The way we would say it is affects God's ability to use us. Wrong. That's wrong. Now, 
our sin may affect God's willingness to abuse us. But there's a big difference between willingness and ability, isn't there? And so what you see here is that God's on a mission and He's going to accomplish His mission. And like I've said a thousand times before, if He doesn't use you, He'll use somebody else. But He's going to do what He's going to do. He's going to keep every promise He makes. That's going to happen. Okay, look. Verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came. See, here we go. A young lion came towards him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now look, I don't know how far apart these crazy people are walking. I don't know how in the world. I'm just trying to imagine. I'm walking along with my son, and he rips a roaring lion to shreds behind me, and somehow I don't hear anything. I mean, these people are so dysfunctional that they must be a half a mile ahead. You get that? Like, they don't even speak to each other. This kid's like, you better go down there and get me. And then they're mad at him because he wants to marry a Philistine. So they're a half a mile. So he's literally dismantling a lion, and they don't even know what's happening. Then he went down, and he talked with the woman... And she was right in Samson's eyes, in his eyes. Oh, i got to not say what I'm thinking. After some days, he returned to take her and turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out with his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and then gave them some and they ate. But he, had, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the, a carcass of a lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there for, so the young men, for what young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, Then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Hold it together, Tony. Just rein it in. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, who who understands, so they're in the process. The seven-day feast is, is the wedding process, and then on the seventh day, the seventh night, that's when he would take his bride and they would go off and consummate the marriage you got it so it's just leading up to that all right 
to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. I mean, these are the kind of neighbors you want to have. You have invited us here to impoverish us. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days that they were at the feast, that the feast lasted. On the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, so literally at the last possible second, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Which is now you understand the genesis of the Jeopardy answer. You see that? Who answers that way? I'll have Bible riddles for 10,000. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? This is exactly where... Uh, Jeopardy came up with this answer structure. And he said to them, <clears throat> I have not committed this verse to memory. I do not have this verse written down on any plaques, cards, or placed in any prominent places in my life. I'm merely here to tell you what the Bible says. He says to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Man, we need some marriage work here. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down 30 men of that town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those he had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So this 30 linen Garments and 30 changes of clothes was an enormously valuable prize. And when they realized they couldn't solve the riddle, they had to get his wife-to-be on the program because they were about to go broke. And when he lost the bet, he just went far enough away where nobody would be able to connect the dots and killed 30 people and took all their clothes and came back and paid the, the ransom, basically what he did. Okay, but then he went to his father's house, which is the wrong house, because it was, remember, the seventh day was the night of the seventh day, which means that would have been the day that he would have went into her father's house and consummated the marriage. But instead, he completely embarrassed her and the family and went to his father's house. So the dad, trying to mitigate the the awkwardness of the situation gives his daughter to the best man okay 
That's what we got going on here. So the question that we need to ask ourselves to stay out of trouble, stay on track, is this. Does God give us this strange story just for the sake of entertainment? Why is this in the Bible? And what in the world is all this nutty behavior about? And the principle that we've got to employ here is that the Bible never says anything for nothing. So therefore, there's something here. The Bible's communicating things to us. And we need to press into it. So I would say this first of all about Samson and the, you know, so he's literally touching a dead thing, the carcass of the, the, the lion. He's getting food out. He's eating it. He's giving it to his mom and dad. I mean, he's just totally defiling the whole thing. Like Samson reaching into a lion, God reaches down into death and through his Savior brings out sweetness that blesses you, your family, and ultimately the world. There's a picture. But what we can't ignore is this. Why is Samson able to kill a lion with his bare hands? Because in verse 6, the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Why is he able to kill 30 Philistines and steal all their clothes and bring them back and give them to pay his ransom? Verse 19 says, because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. See, that's for the legalists. You're all about following the rules. Well, come on, bro. I'm ready to hear it. What you got for me? Why is the Spirit of the Lord coming on this guy to do these things? Hmm? And the Bible even goes so far as to tell us, but his mom and dad didn't know that this was of the Lord. See, God's purposely leading you down this twisted, dysfunctional, crazy path to drive this point deep into your heart. This isn't kind of bad, because then it wouldn't, you wouldn't get it deep down. This is really bad. This is as bad as it gets. So why is the Spirit of the Lord coming on this guy to do these things? God gives Samson superhuman strength for him to cause division between Israel and the Philistines. Remember, what is, what is the, you got to look, you got to first remember, what is the macro situation here? God is saving his people from enslavement to the Philistines. He's, he's protecting his, his people. He's protecting their, their uh, set-apartness, their purity. Their, he's intervening on their behalf. Even though they're not crying out, he's committed to them. Because remember, all the way back in Genesis, God is the one who said, you're going to be a great people and you're going to be a blessing to the world, right? And so, regardless of how dysfunctional you are, God's going to keep his promise. God's going to work his, his will. God's going to do his plan. 
When we, when me and you start believing the lie that our behavior dictates God's behavior, you're saying you control God, which is blasphemy, by the way. But don't think deep down in your heart there's not some remnants of that nonsense just circulating around in there. See, God is starting to save His people by divorcing them from their marriage to their idols and to the world around them. What God is doing is God is creating conflict between His people and their snuggly relationship with the Philistines. God is creating conflict where the, because the people won't do it. So their, their lack of fortitude to separate themselves from an unhealthy situation doesn't stop God from working, does it? Man, this is good for you to think about tonight. See, if you're saved, what does this mean? What does this mean if you're saved? This means that you can't you can't outrun God. You can't God when he said he's never going to turn his back on you, he's never going to leave you or forsake you. What do you think that means? You know, there's been a lot of times where I've had a conversation with a person who was just in deep rebellion to God. And in that, it, if I'm utterly convinced of a person's salvation, which most of the time I'm not, but in a situation where I am, and they're just bent on destruction, you know what I tell them? Go right ahead. Have at it. You want to cheat on your wife? Cheat on her. You want to divorce her? Divorce her. You want to sin? Go right, go. Chase it. Have it. I'm tired of having this conversation with you. Go, go. Go jump off the bridge and have all you want. Does that freak you out? Why, that shouldn't. What does your Bible say? If you're saved, he's not going to leave you or forsake you. Now, he might kill your sorry butt and take you home. But he's going to do what he's going to do. You can't, he's not under your control. You didn't behave your way into the relationship. You can't behave your way out. So God, how many times has God in my life and your life created conflict between us and an enemy that we didn't even see as an enemy. That we were snuggling up to something that was bad for us in our life, and God blew that thing up, created conflict in our life about that. How many times? Oh, hundreds of times. And you didn't know what was going wrong. And why is, there, why is this so? Because it's 
It's dysfunctional because it's bad. Listen, we ain't got time for this, but I just want to throw this little nugget. There's some of you in the room, God exploded your relationship with some of your dysfunctional family members because you didn't have the courage and strength to get away from them. Because you were snuggled up to Philistines. All right, we got to hurry. So he's creating, listen, this idea. Shouldn't God only work with people who are good and godly and, and walk in the straight line and have right beliefs and right behaviors? Yeah, if you want to put God in a box, which you can't, so I'm not exactly sure what you're saying right now. See, in order for that to be true, you would have to make the case that God doesn't work by grace. That God doesn't take initiative to save, false, because he does. And that God somehow only works in response to our works, which is works salvation. It's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. So God keeps his promises to bless his people even in the dark and disastrous periods of our lives. You know why? Because we're his. That's why. So not even our sin will stop him from saving us or using us. See, sin is actually the necessity to salvation. Remember, Jesus said, well, I haven't come for those who who don't think they're sick. Right? Right. So, so oftentimes, God's work can seem beyond our comprehension. But listen, God works through The free choices that people make. Even the bad choices. God works through the free choices that people make. And what you've got to drill into your head and into your heart is that God is not limited or hindered or controlled by the choices that you and I make. You're never going to outsmart Him. You're never going to win against Him. It's futile to try. All you're doing is bringing hardship on yourself. And you're, but listen, make no mistake about it. He works through our free choices. So when I tell you that God doesn't force people to do things, that's what I mean. But don't misunderstand that and think that because He doesn't force us to do things that somehow he's hindered by the fact that he gave us the freedom to choose because that's totally incorrect. Okay? you got to have it clear. All right, chapter 15. After some days, 
at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Here we go with the goat again. Who, by the way, is shacked up with his best man. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. See, he doesn't even know what's going on because he ran off to his dad's house to pout like a big baby. But her father would not allow him to go in, probably because there's another guy there. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. No comment. Verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So he's mad. He's mad at the Philistines. And he's saying, they brought this on themselves. This isn't me. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put the torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, well, Samson, the son-in-law of the the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on uh, Lehi and he's and the men of Judah said why have you come up against us because again they've been living in peace with the Philistines so they answered well we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he has done to us Then 3,000 men of Judah, I mean, this is how scary Samson is. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And we like it because it's peaceful and it's calm and we don't want trouble. And and, And then this is what you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And so they said, well, we have come down to bind you. Hopefully you're going to go along with this and not kill all of us. That we may uh, give you into the hands of the Philistines. So Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Which he's already killed 3,000 people and left them naked. So we know he can do that. Then he said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So basically, what you have is a situation where all the former judges in the book of Judges that we've studied have been able to rally God's people to the battle to overthrow the oppressor. But not in this situation. No, they like the way things are. They're upset with Samson for messing it up. They're like, man, don't you know they rule over us? Don't you know we like this and you're making trouble for us? See, Judah is actually mad at Samson. They see Samson as their enemy, as against them. They come to Samson, 
who's down in the cleft of the rock and they say, what have you done to us? I mean, this is how twisted they've become and how much they've just adopted this posture of ungodliness. This is their normal. They like it. So see, now you start to see why God is introducing conflict because Judah is not ready to fight for their freedom. They're actually ready to fight for their continued oppression. You see, if God doesn't put his spirit on Samson and create all this that's going on, there'd be no Jewish people today. There'd be no Israel. But God's God's utterly, relentlessly committed to what he said he's going to do. And so he's going to do it. And so he uses this broken, twisted man to to create conflict, to free his people, because even when they have no interest in freeing themselves. Now, how many times have you had a conversation with somebody who's in rebellion to God and wrapped up in sin and under the judgment of God and facing the consequences of their behavior, whatever the case may be, and and you've said something to them like, well, God's not just going to do it for you. You've got to do something. Well, kind of. In other words, what, what's true is you don't have to do something. You should do something. You're going to make this a whole lot easier on yourself if you do. But even if you're saved, even if you utterly reject, God's going to do something. So it's just a matter of how tight do you want the vice to get? Because it's just, it's just squeezing in. And, you know, some of us are real knuckleheads. And we go, one more night with the frogs. Just one more night. Just one more night. Isn't that what we do? And we just think we can take a little more and take a little more. See, God doesn't call us to negotiate or sympathize or collaborate with our sin. He calls us to wage war against it. But here's the beautiful picture here. As I thought about this, I thought about the times in my life where I can look back and I can see that, you know what God did? God waged war on the the sin in my life on my behalf. Right? Didn't he do that for you? If he only, if, if there was, if, if the only war against sin was in your life where you took the initiative, we'd be in a jam. But how many times has God created war in my life with things that shouldn't have been there? Yep. And the whole time, I felt like, I, I'm going, God, why are you doing this? And why does this hurt so bad? And why won't this get fixed? And why won't? Because it's not supposed to. Because this isn't good for you. Because I'm protecting you. See, think about this. Judah won't kill Samson. Just deliver him to be killed. See, they go down there and they're like, no, no, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to tie you up and give you to them. 
Now, doesn't that sound like someone? The Jews, they just delivered Jesus to be killed. So what's encamped in your heart or in your head that seems like there's no way to avoid or overcome? Or in what areas of your life have you stopped fighting and accepted hopelessness? It's a good question. Verse 14. So when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. So there's thousands of Philistines. They come shouting to meet him. But again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. As if we didn't know this was going to happen. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax. That's just uh, uh, Hebrew for dental floss. That he might, as they caught fire, and the bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put it in his hand and took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. So they scatter and start running like crazy away from him, and he still kills a thousand of them. And Samson Samson says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. I mean, this guy is like, everything he does is wrong, everything he says is wrong, everything he thinks is wrong, everything about him is wrong. I I mean, he is Jerry Springer. Verse 17, as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. This is wonderful. So he calls upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And so God, restraining the lightning bolts that were in his hand, thinking, I'm going to fry you right now, says, no, I'm going to split open a rock, the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out of it, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he was revived. Therefore, the name of that place was called En-Hakor, and it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. 20 years. So what we need to do is just zero this in. Just take all this chaos and go, all right, how do we need to... What do you need to know before you walk out this door tonight? You need to understand that what this teaches us above and beyond everything else in an absolutely undeniable, ironclad way. Your legalism cannot stand before this text. It cannot. You would have to make up lie after lie after lie and discredit the Old Testament and try to convince whoever it is, or yourself, or whatever it is, that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God, which is unbiblical. Because this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's favor is not merit-based. That's what it proves. 
But is it really just this text? Or isn't the whole Bible woven together with this thread of this same message? Because isn't it, isn't it true that Noah got drunk in Genesis 9. Abraham lied about his wife twice in Genesis 20. Sarah laughed when she heard the promise and word of God. Jacob was a deceiver in Genesis 27. Moses was a murderer and disobeyed God. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a, uh, married a bunch of foreign women and, and embraced their idolatry. Elijah was afraid, distrusted God, and suffered with depression. The disciples argued about who would be the greatest. James and John, who were closest to Jesus, were trying to position themselves to have the most honorable seats in the kingdom. Peter denied Christ three times. What's the Bible trying to tell us? I think the Bible's trying to tell us that God's favor is not merit-based. Isn't that what it's trying to tell us? Yes. That's what it's trying to tell us. See 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to put to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even though that they're not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 John, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't that what God's been trying to tell us the whole time? I think it is. I think... It's not about our imperfections, but it's about God's perfections. This is why it's so damaging to be trapped in some ideology where everybody is trying to Outbehave everybody else. Because what does the Bible teach us? Doesn't the Bible teach us that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit brings the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit? Isn't that what it, the Bible teaches? And that every believer is gifted. And that the evidence of the presence of God in our life is the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Now I want you to go home and I want you to read 1 Corinthians 13, but not the whole love chapter, just the first three verses. And here's what you're going to notice. That what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is he warns us. He says, now, beware, because you can operate in the gifts of the Spirit and not have the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you can, you can have all the love in the world, but you're just sounding brass. You can speak the prophecies of God the, with angelic languages, 
But it's, if it's not in love, it's nothing. See, be careful because what happens is when you start to believe, when you get in a group of people that don't believe what the Bible teaches and they get sucked into legalism and they start, they start, they don't believe that, that the favor of God is not merit-based. Then you have a lot of people that are, that are showing off the gifts of the Spirit, but they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. There's no love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness. You see, you can, no one cares how gifted you are if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot of really, really gifted, useless people. You buy their products every day. You, you're blessed by their innovations every day. But it's the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Yes, Samson illustrates that to us. So we should leave here today so thankful tonight that we serve a God who never, He never grows exhausted with us and just turns away from us. He won't, He won't, He's not going to relent on the promises that He's made. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. He's so committed to his purpose and promises in our life that he'll create war in areas of our life where we're making wrong peace. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for Samson. Thank you for this story. Thank you for giving us this gift to encourage us tonight. Lord, thank you. What a, what a blessing it is to be saved. What a joy it is to know that we're adopted into your family and we can't be unadopted. That you're relentlessly in pursuit of our sanctification regardless of, of our behavior, regardless of even our willingness to acknowledge that. That you never stop. And we're so thankful, Lord. We're so thankful. So we give you praise tonight. For you are a wonderful, good God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in Scripture. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good night. I love you.